Hildebrand's heartbreak is Dan's delight. sudden there he was going into the last lap and it, it all seemed real. Dan Weldon is going to win the race! It's the great American race, but this one was more poignant than any of them. Why was this one so significant? Well, it was quite tragically, just like in our Talladega 2000 episode, amazingly the last win of a great racing driver in the most extraordinary fashion too. The year is a terribly modern for us, 2011, where Sebastian Vettel is dominating F1. Game of Thrones is dominating the TV ratings. Charlie Sheen's dominating the headlines because he's got tiger's blood, man. But it's all about the Indy 500 for us. I've got with us Formula Scout writer Steve Whitfield back in the hot seat to talk about why this was such a historic race. So, Steve, my good friend, first thought on this mad, mad race. <laughs> I think um, it's hard to not think of this race and think of the last few hundred yards, really, which is <laughs> it's rare from any motor race, isn't it? Even though the end of a race is the most significant when a winner takes the checker flag, it's not normally something you largely forget those final few moments. But this one is, uh, for obvious reasons, stands out uh, uh, for uh, reasons we'll come on to talk about. And, uh, yeah, for me, the standout memory is kind of the commentary, which... Even before going back and watching this for the podcast, I can still recall the commentary of those final few moments, word for word, pretty much. Because it's, it's it's the horrible moment where everyone's setting it up. Because every commentator, they have this this thing that they you could they clearly have to learn, which is you're getting yourself all of the the build up and the hype. Uh, it always reminds me of Jensen Button's first win, just getting ready for that moment to call it, and then suddenly what happened happened and you've got just heartbreak and then delight as well as confusion just all in this crazy moment at the end it's just the entire race could literally just have been almost cancelled out for this one moment isn't it it's just a 10 seconds worth of mayhem that makes it classic yeah i saw all you you think about this race is the final run from the final corner to the checker flag the rest of it's almost just forgotten in history. Yeah, my memory of it as well is, of course, apart from the two cars that we all know were mainly involved in the chaos of the end of it, this was the 100th anniversary race of the Indy 500. It started in 1911, uh, but it wasn't actually the 100th race. Five races didn't actually happen, so it was the 95th race on the 100th anniversary, which is terrible for the OCDs amongst us. Well, thanks to everyone who's actually been getting in touch over these podcasts. Uh, for this one in particular, we asked for people's memories on this race. Uh, a memory came in from a name you might know, Mr. Simon Hill, uh, famously a racing driver who did actually race with one of the key characters in this. Uh, you'll know him now as the racing dad of perennial touring car winner, Jake Hill. He got in touch and said, my dear friend, Danny Weldon, winning the 2500, then messaging him afterwards. And his tongue-in-cheek reaction was, never in doubt. Hashtag miss you, daddy boy. Oh, bless him. Thanks, Simon, for that one. So yeah, spoiler alerts have already probably been missed. I think we all know who won this race. Dan Weldon. Uh, well, what are your memories of him, Steve? A fantastic driver through the, t- the 
2000s decade, obviously he'd already won the Indy 500 once, was was looking to win it for a second time for a, a, a rare club that had won it on multiple occasions and also IndyCar champion. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I just remember it throughout the, that uh, decade or 2010, his final full season, what turned out to be his final full season in IndyCar. Yeah, just being big fan of him, really. He was just one of the leading drivers of that decade, along with the likes of Dario Franchitti and Co. Oh, yes. Yeah, a mega talent and uh, and obviously still today very much missed. Uh, my memories of him are slightly more, uh, slightly more obscure in that I remember getting a PlayStation game of IndyCar Racing 2005. I remember him being on the front cover. <laughs> of course, he'd just become champion that year. That's a decent game, that one, actually. You could you could definitely create a chaotic, what they call a big one, in that game. If there was any slight contact, it would just be a monstrous, almost hilarious netcode-style crash that you see in EP Sports these days. But it was a brilliant old game. It's such a shame for Dan that it was also around the time of Champ Car kind of taking over all the attention, especially on Eurosport. So where we used to seeing Paul Tracy I mean, having his brawls with people like Baudet, while in the other side, you've got Tony Canan versus Dan Weldon for a title. Yeah, I do actually remember that um, the cover of that IndyCar game, sort of post-2005, I think, the red and white colour. Yeah, yeah. That was my first foray into IndyCar racing on a PlayStation as well. I've got Dan to thank for that one. Yes, we all do. Thank you, Dan. Unfortunately, by this point, you're having a bit of a contractual... Uh, squabble, I think we'll use as the term. It's racing with Panther racing then. And, well, irony of all ironies, having eventually left that team, the car nearly won this race. <laughs> Dan Weldon won it with Ryan Herter racing. But we'll get on to that later on. Yeah, I think Weldon had finished runner-up with Panther the last two years at the 500 as well, hadn't he? So it's kind of an ironic turn of events how it unfolded in, in the, at the end of the 2011 edition. It was, I think, a low-key low top-tier livery as well, the camouflage National Guard-sponsored car. It's a gorgeous Indy car, that. So we will get into the race, but quite hilarious situations that we've got to mention. I remember the National Anthem, of course, it's been sung by that very popular trio of David Foster, Kelly Clarkson, and of course, Seal. <laughs> I mean, what a lineup! Everyone remembers Seal, yeah. Could see he did a he did a bit of a killer job. No killer, killer. No, no one laughing. Okay, moving on. But we'll start on with, I guess, the orientation day. There's seven rookies in that. There's some quite bizarre names. Of course, one of them, J.R. Hildebrand, we'll talk a lot about. Oh, did you remember any of the others? Um. That's a good question. There's another think, one in there that he will, at some think, point, meet up with at the final corner. I, I think I remember Charlie Kimball being a rookie. Yeah. He was uh, uh, racing uh, with diabetes. There was a big kind of attention on him coming into the race as a diabetic, racing with insulin. I think there was good old Pippa Man who'd raced in kind of um, Formula Renault. I think she'd won in Indy Lights. She was a rookie, wasn't mm-hmm. she, that year? Um who else was there? I think James Hinchcliffe. Yeah, Hinchtown was actually a rookie then, technically, as was, and this is a big throwback, uh, James Jakes. 
a former another Formula Renault racing driver and British F3. That's that's going back a bit, isn't it? <laughs> wow, and this is a brilliant one. Scott Speed, a rookie. Scott Speed is a rookie. Exactly. Scott Speed by this point he'd already raced in Formula One and then left. But there is one who I think you and me both pointed out in this one. Hoping Tung, a driver who has raced in the likes of GP2, I believe. Just lots and lots of single-seaters. One of those drivers who he'll appear in either Sporkle quizzes or if we ever made an episode of Pointless, he would appear in there as a single-seater race winner <laughs> who didn't make it to Formula 1. Yeah, a very eclectic mix of single-seater uh... Championships, championship series raced into his name. I think he was even in Super League Formula, A1 Jeep. Uh, but of course, not not. I'd almost forgotten his brief foray in IndyCar, which was short lived. But he obviously went on to. It's obviously in recent years, going to uh, do well in in prototypes and win at Le Mans. So I think he's <laughs> yeah. He was with Jackie Chan, of course, which was. Uh, but you wonder how many. Times he had to be high kicked in the face <laughs> when things went wrong that weekend. No, he it did. It's been doing quite well in prototypes recently. It's become a bit of a hobby, if anything, though, now for him. Yes, exactly. But he's, yeah, he's had some success of it. So fair play to him. He's kind of found, found his uh, series for him, I think. Well, if you want to talk about racing drivers' stories and how they progress, uh, we've singled out this man because Hoping Tongue's story is quite a different and quite eclectic one we'll say from being briefly on the williams f1 team roster i remember at least it being around the time of say montoya ralschimacher petonia marchionet from that he then and is now a property consultant in china with knight frank <laughs> so he's gone down the homes under the hammer dion dublin route stairs leading up to the bathroom and all that he said in the south china morning post and this is brilliant this is where you think this could have been easily on the apprentice he said, the number of times I've walked into a wall and then tried to walk through the wall again has been too many times to count. God, you could just imagine him saying that in front of the hairy Scotch egg on the BBC. Them two getting on just dandy. It's a, it's, it's a bizarre story, isn't it? But hey, got to do what you've got to do. Is that one of the <laughs> one of the stranger ones of single-seaters who've nearly got to F1 that then completely changed? I'm trying to think of some more. That's kind of got to Formula One then, like, um, oh, I can't remember. No, no, the Spaniard who raced for Toro Rosso went off to be a DJ. Oh, Jaime Algasuari. There's a few that DJs was, as well. Yeah. Laurent Aiello did that. Yeah. Fisichella has kind of done that as well, hasn't he? Although he carried, he carried on racing. There's a few who have gone off and done. I always thought things. Giancarlo should have really started off a pub quiz team and just call it Giancarlo Quizichella. <laughs> I know that is tragic, but. Yes, I've used that one as well. Soz. So next up, it's Paul Day, baby. God, there's a few notable stories in here as well. Drivers including Simona Di Silvestro. She was actually involved in a practice crash and suffered burns, but soldiered on and actually qualified. 24th on the grid. I mean, that's brave stuff. She was a great racing driver. Never took anything off anyone, did she? No, I was a big fan of Simona at the time. It's a shame, uh... 
IndyCar career didn't carry on because I think she could have probably been won races. But yeah, that crash was pretty nasty, wasn't it? Airborne crash, rolled over, caught fire. Ended up, I think she joking at hand at the time. She got Mickey Mouse hands because her hands had these enormous bandages on them. <laughs> and then yeah, still to then qualify after all that, yeah, it was yeah pretty heroic really. Mighty old effort that one. Uh, can you remember who was on pole position? It was a it was a, a complete shock, wasn't it? It wasn't one of the leading teams. It was Alex Tagliani. It was mega fast all week in practice and um, pipped a certain Scott Dixon to pole for Sam Smith Motorsport. <laughs> and that, so, is, uh, that is that is difficult to do. Yeah, and a likely pole for that team as well. Alex Tagliani was having a bit of the the Yano the Yano Trunice, uh, syndrome in that he was superb in qualifying, but sometimes it didn't go to plan in the races, we'll say. Top speed of 227.4 mile an hour, rapid lap. And I think by this point, I think he was just glad to be away from Paul Tracy for a while. Or was he free? <laughs> Not quite, because Paul Tracy actually made it through in a tense bump day, which we'll get onto in a bit. But yeah, we know Paul Tracy and Alex Tagliani made their own little moment in history, which... I don't think I either want to really revisit. But sadly, I think we have good memories of that. But how how was Tagliani, do you think, as a driver? Do you think he just didn't have the look? Yeah, he had his good days. He, he, I don't think he was he got consistent results, did he? But yeah, he was a bit... I think I, I seem to remember more of anything as you say, that, that kind of bust up with Paul Tracy after a random uh, champ car crash in the mid-2000s. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that was one of his probably finer moments of his career, wasn't it? Getting part, you know, getting pole for the Indy Five Hundred is, you know, for anyone, it's uh, for their career, it's a big moment. So um, yeah, he was a fast driver in his day, but yeah, probably not enough, enough, not enough of them. Yeah, well done, Tag. But I, I still remember Derek Daly, God, the noise he made after the, that collision with Tracy in Champ Car. And then, as you see them both headed towards each other, like some ridiculous uh, money-in-the-bank wrestling match, Tag getting closer, and then Derek Daly butts in with, Tag wants him! Tag wants a bit of Tracy! <laughs> and then, of course, the next thing, they're both on the floor. And, yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> so, yeah, Bump Day was a tense, tense one this year. Names that I think we're used to seeing doing quite well. We're starting to struggle in this one. I mean, Marco Andretti, of all people, he almost didn't make it through. And Danica Patrick, who by this point was, of course, one of the big, big things in IndyCar. Pippa Mann, Anna Beatrice as well in there. And then out of nowhere, Ryan Hunter-Ray, a champion in IndyCar, didn't actually make it. I mean, he's a champion, for goodness sake. Yeah. Well, it was it was an interesting weekend of qualifying because both two of the biggest teams, Andretti and Penske, really struggled, and I think pretty much all but one of Andretti's cars didn't make it through to the, the top twenty-four. And remarkably, the only one that did get through was old John Andretti. Old John, <laughs> <laughs> the Cheerios man himself, Danica Patrick and Marco Andretti to to. Guarantees place on the grid while they all had to go through the stress of bump day. Um, so, yeah, there was a, a few big names that really struggled over those qualifying days. Scott Speed didn't even make it through, did not live up to his surname on that occasion. There's another one as well who 
where we'll both know, Mike Conway. He didn't make it through. I remember he had a horrendous shunt at Indy one season, but that was a shock. Big shock because Conway nearly made it to Formula One a couple of years before. He was driving a Braun GP car. I think we all thought when Conway went to IndyCar, we'd be absolutely superb. And I think, I think it was the year before this this edition, we had that absolutely horrendous airborne crash into the barriers. And I think he probably lost his appetite for ovals after that, didn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and yeah. He's just very much good. a street fighter, was Conway. He loved the street circuits. Yeah. That's why he won, well, he won at Monaco, didn't he, in GP2? And then just could not find a way in at Formula One, really. To God damn you, Jensen Button. So, yeah, it's all going wrong for Hunter at this point. But then a lifeline came out of nowhere. This is this is where it gets a little bit of... Uh, if it was if it was a meme or a clip from a TV show, this would be the bit of the in-betweeners where he goes, mm, I don't know, that sounds a bit dodgy, that. <laughs> it's because you could actually take a car, almost like the old days of Formula One, where you see Mike Hawthorne jumping in a Ferrari and then say, can I finish the race in your car, please? The Andretti team were actually looking around to see if they could find a car to buy out. Lo and behold, Bruno Junquiera, another champ car driver, his seat suddenly became the one they wanted to take. I mean, Bruno Junquiera, if he was a character on a TV show, he probably would have been unlucky Alf off the fast show. Never, never went his way. Of course, Jensen Button beat him to a Williams F1 drive in a shootout just before the year 2000. And of course, then, while Button is sat there enjoying the high life at this point, having just won the World Championship two years ago, Bruno's just qualified for the Indy 500. The next thing, Andretti have come along and bought his seat to allow Ryan hunter to enter the race. I mean, no, in my luck, someone will probably come and take me drive off me. Oh, bugger. That's exactly what happened to him. Yeah, he was very much the nearly man, wasn't he, in his career? He was runner-up in, in cars a couple of times, I think. And um, by, by that stage of his career, he, he wasn't a regular IndyCar driver anymore. Uh, I think that was just a one-off for him. And, uh, yeah, a bit, pretty, pretty rough deal, that, to, to, to make it uncomfortably for the 500. And then you tell him, no, sorry, we've we've sold your seat, mate. Um, yeah, that's the way IndyCar works sometimes, isn't it? The, the regular drivers... That don't make it sometimes have that option to buy the way back in, which yeah, I don't think it sits that comfortably, really, does it? Um, no, it's got big six Premier League stuff written all over it, really. Junkera actually tweeted, I got bump, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, I'm surprised people weren't actually getting in touch saying either congratulations or is it a boy or a girl <laughs> with that wording. But he added, I will not race in the Indy 500. In a more formal press release, he was quoted as saying, I have to thank AJ, Larry and the team for giving me this opportunity to drive at Indy this year, because otherwise I would have been riding my bike in Miami somewhere. I always respected AJ before, but after working with him, I respect him even more. God bless Bruno, because he could have taken that a lot, lot worse. That could have been legal, etc., etc. No, he just let it go. That must have been a stinker for him, mustn't it? Yeah, oh, that's a t- tough one, isn't it? Because we all know the Indy 500 is one of the biggest races on the planet. And um, yeah, but I think he, he always came across in his career as a really nice guy. He wasn't, you know, someone who's going to make trouble, I don't think, um, even though he, he probably would have had a right to. So, oh, yeah, um, trouble, yeah. trouble's always fun. Trouble's always fun in American racing. So, yeah, fair play for them for taking it on the chin and, and uh, moving on. But, yeah, it's a tough one not to, to get to race through things that through politics. 
Someone who did qualify and did not have a seat bought off him was, well, this is crazy, Buddy Rice, seventh place, and was absolutely flying. But I remember him having a horrific crash one year, so this is a proper recovery story as well. Well done, Buddy. Absolutely, and he, he, knew, he knew his way around the, the speedway because he'd won there, hadn't he, before as well. Um, so he's a mega quick driver around there. Easily the best buddy since the Christmas house elf. So yeah, on to race day. Is there a favourite? Because, of course, you've got some good names in there. Well, even back then, I mean, you look at who's alongside him, certain Scott Dix, or even today, you never discount. And even back then, he'd already won the race. Um, was you know had a, had a strong start to the season. Will Power as well. You know he was leading the championship coming into this race, and I think he was fifth on the grid. But Frank Kitty, he, he I think he had he won the five. I think he no, I think he won the five hundred year before and was the reigning champion. And funnily enough, he ran out of fuel on his qualifying when he was on course for a front row spot. And ended up ninth. So he was another one. Even though he was on row three, you were looking at thinking on race day, had the chance to come through and probably some of the the poor performing Penske's and Andretti's you probably thought on race day might have the pace to come up the order. Yeah, Dario was, I think, the second quickest Brit. Dan Weldon was actually the fastest with Brian Herter racing. He was P6 so on the second row. Dario P9, as you said, he was definitely at his peak at this point course he won the title but yeah 11 years earlier he was another person who flirted with formula one when he um i'm going to put in inverted commas here tested a jaguar f1 car uh, i say that because it sounded like he was tread to an utter shambles of a test when you dive into the actual uh, inner workings of the car that he was given and time he had etc i mean i think that was a big miss for formula one Absolutely. I mean, undoubtedly, I think could have been a success in Formula One, but I don't think that Jaguar would have been the right move. I think that team was a, just a disaster, wasn't it? Something any driver trying to make it, you know, um, as a, a rookie. I think we saw other drivers go to, to, go to Jaguar and fail. So I don't think that would have been the right move. And as you say, he didn't have really the great testing opportunity. But yeah, one who definitely was a bit of a missed star in Formula One. Yeah, and the Ganassi team, of course, they had a borderline fantasy team, really, with Dario and Scott Dixon. I mean, Scott, we don't really hear anything about what he could have done Formula One-wise because his stats at the moment in IndyCar are just ridiculously good. I mean, yeah, what is it? Has he won now 19 seasons in a row, I think I'm saying. Yeah, 55 wins, 19 seasons. Mind-boggling, isn't it? To perform at that level for two decades. You keep yeah. thinking, it must it must wilt. Something must go wrong. And then every season, people get quicker. And he just goes, well, this is normal to me. And the next thing you know, he's coming from the back after a spin in a race at Indianapolis to win. Phenomenal. Just yeah. a proper racing driver. Wherever he's in the field, you just don't write him off, do you? He's just always capable of being there when it matters at the no. end of the season, end of a race. Yeah, just another one who... Yeah, it's a shame we never got to see him really in F1 because I think another one who really, in the right team, could have been phenomenal. Ladies and gentlemen, the 100th anniversary edition of the Indianapolis 500. So, ready to go. A smooth start by everyone, led actually by Scott Dixon. So all the hype that we're giving him, thankfully, is valid. As it goes through, it does look as though everyone is just 
kind of getting themselves as the day went over racing same with nascar just getting themselves in the into the zone getting a nice rhythm going and it actually takes 20 laps before the first yellows waved and heartbreak it is takuma sato such an exciting driver Most, he constantly appears in people's favorite list doesn't he absolutely he's just Win it all, isn't it? It's absolutely flamboyant. And as we've seen, you know, double Indy Cup, he's going to be a double Indy 500 winner. You know, he's absolutely rapid, particularly on speedways on his day. So, yeah, he's, he is a driver. He's ne- never a dull moment. So he's either going to win or he's going to end up in the wall. And sadly, this year, he did end up in the wall. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty uh, rough 500 from this one, unfortunately. Also, absolutely rapid on a pedal bike. I love the story of how we actually got to single seater racing because back then in Japan, around about the early, about the late nineties, he ended up at the Suzuka Racing School because he was too old at this point. They managed to allow him in as a little kind of, okay, you've pestered us enough. A bit like Jason Plato in touring cars racing after Frank Williams in the <laughs> outside their um, offices, just to beg, say, can I please have a drive? They allowed him in just took off in his career, became a perennial F3 winner. And then, of course, just lit, lit up the world in Formula One with his uh, lunging and excitement. Lovely yeah, story. Being a certain Anthony Davidson, didn't he, in British F3, I seem to remember. <laughs> and then couldn't get away from him for the rest of his career in F1, yeah. it seemed. <laughs> Not to be outdone, though, our old friend E.G. Viso was next to be turned into the wall by James Hinchcliffe. Oh, poor Viso. We've already talked about him before. <laughs> This was a case of three into one doesn't go, wasn't it? Yeah. I think Rizzo was just unlucky. It was two cars on the inside. Pretty, but hard hit as well into the wall. Was not pretty at all. Walk away from that. And then behind that, as the field slowed, Marco Andretti did one of the best evasive manoeuvres of this race who went up down low to pass. I don't know who it was. Narrowly having his own massive shunt. It's a Tom Cruise moment going through the chaos. Yeah, this was a really wild restart, this one, which, you know, uh, was short-lived because the safety car was soon back out. The pole position, Tag's race, just completely unravelled, unfortunately. Dropped to 12th place, having been in the battle early on. Then pitted after a brush with the wall. Eventually, he actually finished 28th, which is pretty gutting, considering he's actually beaten by a car which had three wheels, which finished 26 spots better off in second place. <laughs> It's just the, the way the 500 goes on race day where the balance of the car changes and fortunately tagged as the race went on, his car became more and more loose at the rear, just couldn't get on top of it. And as you say, eventually hit the wall, damaged the right front. And yeah, fit, I think they fixed the problem and he trailed home at the back. But yeah, after all that, that joy of the pole, it all came and, and it all unraveled over the over the race, unfortunately. So there was no, no fair as hell for him and Sam Smith's he did lead more than 10 laps though several drivers did there weren't really any sort of breakaway dominant drivers in this really frank kitty led dixon led oriel servia another perennial indycar champ car man he led as well most of the race though i suppose you could say it was really between dario and scotty to try and win this is the main fight through a lot of it isn't it yeah, throughout most of the race, the Chip Ganassi's cars just looked to have that edge, didn't they? they? I think Dixon led the most laps of anyone. Frank Kitty, you know, he had a big, you know, several lead spells as well. Servi was 
Boreal Server is probably their closest challenger for the most part, but it, it did look like it was either going to be Dixon or Frank Kitty in normal circumstances going to win because they just, yeah, between them, they were untouchable for most of the race. There was a multi-car crash that eliminated the likes of Townsend Bell, Ryan Briscoe, of course, as well. It was, like we said, Penske having a rotten day, really. Yeah, and I, I think Will Power as well, the championship leader early on, they didn't put the... Um, the wheel on correctly in the pit stop spun dropped a lap um so it's yeah it's just a rotten day for Penske wasn't it nothing seemed to go to go right for them and then this this two car collision as well yeah just a, a day to forget for it's a such a sad image seeing Will Power just like limping out of the pit still in the queue with just nothing on the rear the left rear corner it's the kind of record scratch so I suppose you're wondering how I got into this position <laughs> So after this, of course, fuel strategies then start to kick in by this point as we're heading towards the nitty gritty. And honestly, the timing of these, they are, and I cannot stress this enough, fucking awkwardly timed, weren't they? Yeah, I think just seven, this final caution was with, what, just under 40 laps to go. And I think a few tried to top up and make it to the end, including Dario. Um and Hildebrand as well. I think a few of them tried to make it, Dixon, and then, yeah, it led to a really strategic final stint of the race, didn't it, after this uh, final safety car with Briscoe and Bell. Um, and, yeah, it, it just it was a completely different end to the race after Pence, after Chip Ganassi's domination until this point. It, it just became who could stretch that fuel. Dario, by this point, kind of got the, the guinea pig factor in him. So he's thinking... I'll have to go for this. There's no other way. And then a couple do follow him in, as you say, which leads to every so often, brand new, uh, complete gambles coming on and leaders who you would not have expected, including who? Who leads? Well, there was quite a few, wasn't there? There was um, Danica Patrick suddenly randomly led, having been started well down the field, but had no chance to make it. I think she had to bail it five laps to go. And then random name, had, having already briefly led in the middle of the race, just due to the um, phase of the pits, that suddenly was leading on merit. A certain uh, forgotten name called Bertram Baguette. There he is. The fastest sandwich in the whole of motorsport. Patrick pitting me five laps to go, and suddenly Bertram Baguette blasting past Dario Franchitti, who was, at this point, realising, yeah, this is going horribly wrong and turning everything down. And Baguette suddenly... Surely was not going to be a, an Indy 500 winner. It just it seemed extremely unlikely, but he was on to win it. It's the hope that kills you, isn't it? This is what happens. You think you never know. We've seen people do this before. This could even be one of those just little sneaky wins where it just ekes it out. Of course, that name was very much new to IndyCar. We'd seen him in World Series by Renault being rapid, almost on the Force India side of F1s. So I'm not going to say Academy, but that sort of laddery was heading towards also has one of the names which just reminds me of uh the italian giovanni lavaggi who if you translated his name from italian to british i think was famously johnny car wash <laughs> one of those names bertrand's definitely up there with classic names yeah i, th I think he'd done indycar the year before hadn't he? and then this he hasn't carried on this show because he's um first race of the year in, in indycar and uh 
yeah, suddenly there he was with less five outs to go leading. <laughs> with a mixture of people like us going, come on, Bertrand, and then everyone else kind of going, uh, is that a lapped car? Uh, where Who's leading? So by this point, there's a lot of confusion probably going on. As the laps dwindled down, though, he didn't come in, but then finally he had to give in. He pits. Dario's back in the lead, but as you say, just nursing it home. He's proper granny on the left-hand side of the motorway, just hanging on now by this stage. And eventually, it just starts dwindling, doesn't he? Yeah, that's it. I think he had three laps to go. He had to bail out. Frank Kitty now was, yeah, was he knew he just was struggling to get to the end at this point. And all of a sudden, through all of it, having never really featured at the front, suddenly there was the rookie J.R. Hildebrand in the lead of the race with three to go and behind him, Dan Weldon. The two that there's not really... I think Weldon had been around the top six all race, but suddenly these two, their strategy of just saving through at the beginning of this final stint paid off because suddenly they had the pace because the Ganassi cars and everybody else started to go backwards. Um, suddenly, this it's is... It's mad though because... Dan just wasn't mentioned at this point. I think by this stage, you would never have even remembered he was in this race. It's just yeah. barely picked up until they've got about four laps to go. And of course, yeah. by this stage, everyone's talking about JR and you've got the whole thing of the, all the commentators are looking through their notes trying to work out what to say and <laughs> trying to work out the statistics of it all. Because if you're still a rookie at this point, but it looked, it looked on. It really did look on, didn't it? It did, yeah. I mean, he was well clear. He was several seconds clear of Weldon at this point. And it, and it happened all so quickly. All of a sudden, there he was going into the last lap. And it, it all seemed real that he was going to win it. He was gunning for it as well. None of this fuel saving. It's the one where you think, if I get there quickly, it won't matter. I could run out, out of, I could run out over the line. That doesn't matter. I think he was just all out. If it happens, it happens. If not, at least we gave it a go. And then... One lap to go. Good grief. This is this is just one of the the complete polar opposites in emotion. There's so much emotion involved everywhere, isn't there? I mean, do you remember how it felt live? Yeah, I mean I, I remember watching it live and first of all like the commentators thinking, Who is J.R. Hildebrand? Who is <laughs> this guy? I've never been anywhere near the front all race, and suddenly there he was leading. Um and yeah, just thinking, well, what, what a shot. You just thought it was all over. There wasn't even a hint of a lap car in the distance at that point. But I think by then, a few cars were just running on fumes, limping round. And uh, yeah, suddenly, uh, I seem to remember the commentators with two corners to go saying, there's lap traffic. He's still got, there's suddenly the element of that in the commentator's mind of, He's still going to negotiate lap traffic. Yeah, yeah, that was completely accurate as well, because we all know what happens there. Completely normal move to the outside. Two corners to go. 799 corners by this point have been completely trouble-free. Suddenly, Charlie Kimball doing nothing wrong. We'll, we'll stress that. Charlie has nothing to be... <laughs> no one has anything to be aggrieved about with him at this stage. Hugs the inside line. JR goes to the outside on all of the crap that's been left there. And it's just, it's the Thomas Schechter did this as well. It just drifts wide, smack. Through the final two quarters, JR Hildebrand. Careful traffic. He's got to get around the lap. Traffic. 
What a gift! No! 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 He hit the wall! Oh just like Thomas Shaker! Just like In the ball, and then just carries on, just carries on like free wheeling down the straight, and there's still a chance they could win at this point. Yeah, it was that classic getting up on the marbles, wasn't it? Late in the race, so Kim, I think Kimball must have been out of fuel and was just cruising and just it trying to like it. And Hildebrand, yeah, all he could do was go wide, and I think he just carried too much speed on the marbles. And I imagine he must like replay in his mind just the slow motion, the horror of realizing I'm going in the wall. And yeah, sadly, he did end up in the wall. And, and yeah, I think it's interesting to remember. Thomas Schecht because the commentator immediately remember that didn't he as he hit the wall in turn four he went he's in the wall like Thomas Schecht who'd binned it, it from the eerily lead. similar not not on the final lap but had binned it there in very similar circumstance and the comment I, I seem to remember that very moment in the commentary he's in the wall like Thomas Schecht <laughs> and then there was still this kind of thought he could still win he's, he's still got momentum it's still going, going. It's, it's the Will Ferrell thing it's still going <laughs> And then there out in the background, you could just see Dan Weldon and coming and you realised, yeah, Weldon's going to win. JR actually spoke to Jack Benyon at the race and he said about all that, I think in a slightly different version of that scenario, my turn three spotter would have given me a heads up that there was a car going 40 mile an hour or so slower than me into turn four. I think now 10 years later, that's probably something I would just pick up on my own sooner and maybe just not have to deal with. I mean, I just, at the time, I just felt so, so, so sorry for him because it's one of those where, as a rookie, there's all the time in the world to still do it, but you just feel as though it's it's like it's like in football, like a Leicester City, if they'd have not won and all these things. It's the same with, as of course, I support Newcastle United. I know how that felt of not winning it when it was there. He'll constantly relay that through his head, so... It must feel worse now because you said at the time he was a rookie and it was still absolutely terrible to to lose a race like that at the end. Even the time would have been horrible. But you say years still left in his career, he probably thought, well, he's got plenty of chances to make amends. Surely there'll be the fairy tale where he eventually comes back and wins it. But the fact he never has, I don't think he even never won an IndyCar race, did he? That must, yeah, that, how do you ever kind of get over that really when you you really look back now and I mean you think of like yeah I mean you think of like the Andretti curse for example even the legends of the Andrettis found it so difficult to win a brickyard and there he is one corner to go with it in his hands yeah oh that's just I remember remember Dale Earnhardt actually it took him forever to win the Daytona 500 despite all of the wins he had and he was on a, a an American talk show and there's a bit in it where it said yeah, who cares if I have him on the Daytona 500? At least my name isn't Dick Trickle. <laughs> Dan Weldon is going to win the race! Yeah, Dan! That is unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, as you say, Dan Weldon just sneaks through all of this, wondering what has just happened. There's the checkered flag. The next thing, he's drinking the milk. From winning the race, apparently he only led in the last one thousand feet of the entire race. Nuts! He broke a nearly a hundred-year record for leading the shortest ever yeah, distance. Yeah, he did. Right. <laughs> which kind of just sums the race up, really. Just it was a race that ended up being a very unlikely kind of ending for many reasons. 
and he scooped up a lovely uh, winning pot of two and a half million dollars in rewards, just in rewards. So yeah, the results were, of course, Dan Weldon winning, Hildebrand, incredibly, second across the line, despite two wheels hanging off. It's funny, it's the Sebastian Buemi effect if he's still trying to steer the car <laughs> with one wheel still working on the front. Bless him. Yeah. Graham yeah. Rahal and Tony Kinnan. Yeah, I think he had another question to turn one, didn't he? Because he got no steering and brakes. He just carried on into turn one and hit another wall as well. <laughs> just to get the sympathy for. Yeah, I think he must have had his foot flat on the throttle over down the straight, the desperate to win. So then he ended up crashing, having a second crash at turn one and after the checkered flag as well, but still finished second. And still finished three places higher than Scott Dixon, who we've literally raved about all the way through this. And of course, Dario Franchitti finished 12th, limp, literally limping it home. And he's a strange one. I'll ask you, who is a name you think of as this man is probably going to win? Like, if you think oh, this guy's great at Indy. The one we've not mentioned, Helio Castro Neves. That's the one. It's <laughs> yeah, an absolute beast, the 500, wasn't he? I think he'd been on pole the last two years here coming to this race and was bidding. I know he's gone on to do it now, but at the time was bidding for his fourth 500 victory and he just had a torrid. He got completely messed up with all the pit strategies. He had a rotten pit stop. He finished 17th, which I think when you look, if you look on a Wikipedia page of Indy 500 results, that'll be the, the greyed out one because he was just, you'd, you'd always be in a pick. If you ever do a sweepstake, which I do, sorry, geek alert, you'd always be the instant first pick if you get the chance. Canal, did he finish fourth in that race? Yeah, fourth he, place. I think he's a lap down at least one occasion in that race. That, then, that is classic American over racing. Three comeback drives in that race and finished fourth. <laughs> I did. Did they have the? Did they have the lucky dog rule in this? Or was this just NASCAR where the first car a lap down used to get given a lap back? I can't remember. Because that used think... to get people out of jail a lot in NASCAR. That happened. Did that? Was that the when Villeneuve was two laps down and came back to win? Was that, was that kind of some kind of joker thing that got him back? I seem to remember Villeneuve was two laps down and won the 500 back in the 90s. So after all of the joy, unfortunately, this is an episode which does have a tragic end to it. Because four months later, after down in the milk, Dan is killed in a crash in the final race of the season. It wasn't, of course, one he could really avoid. It was one of those monster, everybody almost involved shunts. And weirdly, he was driving the car. Alex Tagliani was actually on pole in, in the Indy 500. I still have completely 100% memories of watching that in bed. And it's just horrendous. One of the darkest days of my uh, motorsport experiences, really. I was watching it live. Yeah, it was horrendous being a big Weldon fan. He wasn't even meant to be racing, was he? Indy 500 was meant to be his only race that year. Went into commentary thing after that. Yeah, he then did. Got- come back for this kind of was it was it a million dollar prize to come from last to first to win it, it? was they started him at the back and uh he did I, he wasn't really a smoke driver at all but i think he was joke, joking that it was going to be quite possible and that he would just do it in a few laps basically and he did actually make a great start unfortunately having charged through quite a lot of cars that put him in the line of fire really him and will power were probably the worst impact in that horrendous height gain from Will Power. I'm amazed he got away with that one. It's a bit like the Dale Earnhardt one. The the impact just was could not have been in a worse position really. 
and it was just tragic of the weight, the weight afterwards, because of course it was still live. I think on Sky Sports, I was watching it, and they kept it going, even even in that gap. The news was given, and the press conference was said, and we lost Dan Weldon. Yeah, it's it just a tragic story because this was at the height of the real safety concerns about this particular car that it just always seemed to get airborne. There have been so many horrific airborne accidents in this particular car. And Dan Weldon had been the one testing this new car, which ultimately was the name was it was named after him in the end of the car, wasn't it? The next generation car, which was designed to actually reduce these airborne impacts. And yeah, he just absolutely had no chance in this incident, wasn't it? It was just a, I think they were, I remember watching at the time and. It was an explosion, really. It was just a giant bomb going off. The sketchy racing that they were all going like four wide the whole time. You, anything went wrong, there was going to be an aeroplane crash. And that's sadly what happened. He was just at the back of it and just hit the back of another car. And just thinking he, he just went into the catch fencing and then it is just a lottery whether he survives and he just unfortunately um, hit a pole. And yeah, just, just remember the aftermath was horrendous, wasn't it? Remember the, um, just the oh, drivers. The, the, the slow laps as well. Those those five laps that they did with Amazing Grace playing over the top of it as well. Uh, that's, so- uh, even when I watch it back now, I still just start choking up. It's it's the one of the few times that I still look back at something and genuinely feel quite emotional. I think that's a bit much for me. I don't. I think it's just because I've seen it live and who it involved, and just seeing everybody staying round as well. Most people stayed in the grandstand. Just tragic after such that, as you say, the joy of the five hundred, and then a few months later to end like that was yeah, truly awful. Yeah, you say about airborne crashes as well. I remember I think two thousand and seven when Dario won the title. There was a phase near the end of the season when he actually had two races back to back where he had airborne flips through the air. One of them was going across the line, just quarterback marker. And then the onboard shots of that are like the Weber Valencia Formula One race, just sky, sky, oh, ground. So he knew all about it. And he was one of the more emotional ones out there. There's a lot of shots of Dario that I don't think he really wanted of him getting out of the car and just almost completely exhausted mentally in tears next to it and then even being interviewed it's just it was so hard for a lot of drivers that day wasn't it yeah and, and yeah that's feel for frank hitch as well because he ended up winning the title in that race and it just completely overshadowed because i think a close friend of his as well um and as, as well as many drivers in fact and yeah just always piled into insignificance didn't it on the day you know, Dario actually said uh, on TV, he said, we put so much pressure on ourselves to win these races and championships. And that's what we love to do. That's what we live for. But days like today, it doesn't really matter. I lost and we lost a good friend. Everybody in IndyCar could sit it down a friend. Of course, his team boss, Chip Ganassi, as well. He said, a little bit of everyone in IndyCar racing died. Oriel Servia, we've mentioned him. He said, Dan was always a very happy guy, always smiling. Funny, great person that touched a lot of people. I can't yeah. remember. I seem to remember Thomas Schechter basically finishing his IndyCar career at that point. He was so done with it after that that he just didn't want to come back. Yeah, I think we probably considered not watching an IndyCar race for a while after that as well. Mm-hmm. It sparked quite a lot of changes, though. I mean, now we have the halo. It's, it's bizarre seeing cars without a halo, I think. Whenever I see races back then, I think that looks incredibly unsafe just because of bits flying everywhere. 
I mean, those cars back then, they did look and sound fantastic, but they were, you, you could see how exposed they were and, you know, say how easily they became airborne as well. Yeah, it was proper, you know, respect to the drivers that raced them. They were really, you know, it's a dangerous period. If you ever want to see um, how massive those cars are as well, uh, get yourself to Donington Park into the cafe in the middle because they've got one of Justin Wilson's um, champ car racing cars in there on a plinth, which I think, I don't know about yeah. you, but every time I go in there, it's, it's still, it still gets me. Yeah, and another one just totally wrong place, wrong time, wasn't it? For poor, poor old uh, badass Justin Wilson. Yeah, it's... Um... The car yeah. looks so big when you see it up close. It looks. I keep thinking, imagine being, well, having for one, having one nearly land on top of you, and just two, just being wheel to wheel with them. I just think, you, either your wrist's going to get broken if you make contact because of the steering column of them, or it's just going to be a huge impact because they were enormous cars. Yeah. Wilson, of course, was in this 2011 500 as well, wasn't he? Finished in 16th. He did. For- Ryan Bolt Racing. A man who did actually end up racing for Jaguar in Formula One. Yeah, he was a solid driver in F1. I seem to remember him in Menard as well with Paul Stoddart. And... There was a phase when he nearly, very nearly, had a chance of getting pole position in a race for Minardi. Because I think it was a, at the French Grand Prix. That it was the, the weird days of everyone does a lap on Friday, then again on Saturday, but the other way around. And it chucked it down on the, the early far part of Friday. So when the Minardis came out, they had a dry track. I think Justin just got beaten by Jos Verstappen, a name you might have heard of. And then sadly, it dried up on Saturday and the whole dream was crushed. Much to all of our complete disgust. God damn you, weather forecasters. Now, that would have been Go- funny. I would have loved to have seen a Minardi 1-2 in a Formula 1 race. Going back to the 500 for a second, obviously... Panther tried to protest the result after the race, didn't they? Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, that very sports. The claim that um, Dan had overtaken under yellows, which wasn't the case anyway, and was irrelevant because it had been hard to argue for, for Dan slamming on his brakes and following the three-wheel car across the line. So it's like <laughs> a very feeble attempt from Panther to try and desperately rescue the race. I would have loved to have heard that that bit in the stewards' room where they went. But so, hang on, which car caused this incident? Oh, okay, right. How do you how do you explain that one then? So there you have it, the last win of one of racing's all-time good guys. Thank you, Steve, for looking back on his last moments and a real classic from the archives. Don't forget to get in touch with us on socials with your thoughts and any other races you remember from down the years. And we'll promise, I do promise this, we will try and get onto those when we can. Until then, I'm going to have to leave the last words, not to me or Steve, but to commentator Marty Reed from Las Vegas, who famously said, people often ask me, why do I sign off with the phrase, till we meet again? Because goodbye always feels so final. Goodbye, Dan Weldon. Dan Weldon is going to win the race! Yeah, Dan! That is unbelievable.